Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with the third programme in our repeat series about the career of Ivan Illich. A time in my life in which I was taken up by campaigns. And during that time, at a certain moment, I came to feel like a jukebox. Arguments which I had made a year or three years ago on a 33 record, by now we're down to a short one of 45 RPM. And really, I had to get in front of my audience, tell the audience, push the right combination of buttons. I'll deliver what you have called me to do here and then let's talk, let's get it over with. Between 1960 and 1975, Ivan Illich was often in the public eye. His campaigns against development assistance, against compulsory schooling, and against the medicalization of society influenced the public agenda of that time. Tonight's program is about the time when the campaigns ended and Illich turned his full attention to a pursuit which had always fascinated him. I worked on teaching history. Some people said using it as if it were a drug. I said, no. Cultivating disciplined states of altered awareness. We'll explore some of the changes that Illich thinks our contemporary society is undergoing. In a society in which we fantasize, when we speak about genetic engineering, of creating people who look like you, but in fact are not descendants of any parents, we go much further than the last generations who believed that you could have parents without having communities or households. And we'll hear finally about the silence which Illich now feels is the only proper response to the horrors of our time. I do not want to take part in the conspiracy of gab about peace, but claim the privilege to horrified silence in front of certain things if I can make my horror visible. Part moon, part traveling salesman. Conversations with Ivan Illich is written and presented by David Cayley. It's based on conversations recorded last fall at Illich's house in State College, Pennsylvania, where he teaches for part of the year at Penn State University. During the 1960s and early 70s, Ivan Illich became known to a wide public as a brilliant satirist and critic of contemporary institutions. He sensed in the spirit of the times an opportunity for radical personal and social reform, and he seized the opportunity with a series of what he called pamphlets, polemical books and articles designed, above all, to provoke public discussion. His base in those years was the Center for Intercultural Documentation in Cuernavaca, Mexico, when Illich established CEDOC, as it was known, in the early 60s, he was still a monsignor of the Roman Catholic Church, and the center's main purpose was to serve as a focus for dialogue between the American Church and Latin America, as well as as a language school and training center for priests and religious. In the mid-60s, he overhauled CEDOC and turned it into an institute for advanced studies as well. Through Illich's research seminars, 
the center became an international gathering place for writers and thinkers interested in alternatives to the institutions of industrial society. The adventurousness and the intellectual vibrancy of the work which Illich and his friends carried on at CEDOC made it a target of sometimes violent attacks from the Mexican right and led to the center's being briefly banned by Rome in 1968. Illich suspended his activities as a priest and carried on. Then, in 1973, he decided that CEDOC had had its day. I had come to the conclusion that all that I wished to achieve and that could be done, had been done. That because of the funny image created, the physical danger to my collaborators had become something which it was difficult to take responsibility for. You must think what um, Latin America was at that moment. And uh, that I did not, I also understood that the place would not be able to save itself from university-like institutionalization. Stanford, Cornell, and some other universities had kind of groups of three or four professors each who wanted to take over that place, which would have meant that the 63 people who under the leadership of Valentina Bormans actually ran and made the center, none of whom had a college degree, most of whom did not have finished elementary school, would be replaced by a new bunch of internationals. Illich also saw that changes in the Mexican economy could affect CEDOC. The center had been run on the surplus income generated by its excellent language school, and that surplus depended on CEDOC's being able to charge American prices while paying Mexican wages. Inflation of the Mexican economy, as a result of the post-OPEC oil boom, threatened this arrangement, as well as promising an eventual crash. So Illich called together the 63 staff members and made a proposal. I convinced the gang of 63 that it was in their interest to accept my plan. For the next two years, or year and a half, as long as it would take, income above expenditure would not be spent anymore on the purchase of books or on airplane tickets for people whom we wanted to gather from Latin America. That had to cease. This money would go into a fund, and then the fund would reach one and a half time the salary mass of a year. It would be divided into 63 equal parts, and people would go home, and we would close the institution. We then did it on the 10th anniversary, 1st of April, 76, with a huge fiesta to which hundreds of people from town were present. The library went as a gift to the most responsible library, the Colegio de Mexico. And from one day to another, it was over. I then spent several years learning Oriental languages, getting my feet for long times on roads which I walked in Southeast Asian countries, having for a short time the dream that what I really should do would be to discover 
describe the history of Western ideas in an Oriental language far enough away from those languages which I know, that I would really get a distance. I found out that my brain was already too used, that I was too old, I couldn't do it. And even if I could do it, probably I wouldn't be able to write the stuff which I wanted. I saw that Northern India, when I finally got well enough into language and people, wasn't far enough away and was already too British to do what I wanted to do. So, so I moved another step further into the Middle Ages. I went back to the 12th century, which I always loved, to certain authors like Eloisa, like Abelard, like Hugh of St. Victor, like all their names, whom, whom I've been affectionately acquainted with, and began for almost 10 years to teach medieval intellectual history in French and mostly in German, in order to figure out how what would happen if I described the transportation system to a very brilliant and adaptable and, 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 and sensitive monk of the year 1135, and began to play with Latin dialogues in which I explain the trans... the <laughs> educazione. <laughs> to get a certain distance, to become a migrant between two space-times, as Einstein says, spines, our certainties and that other world of certainties. Illich concluded that the 12th century was probably as close as he would get to what he was looking for, a fulcrum with which he could lever contemporary people out of their certainties. He sought a position teaching medieval history and ended up at the University of Marburg, Marburg in Germany, an old university where Luther and Zwingli had their big dispute in the early 16th century, a little university town rented a small apartment there and taught medieval history there. They offered me excellent conditions for this purpose, particularly 300 students, amazingly, most of whom could follow my Latin text when I interpreted it. I was surprised that I should find this at, a, at, at, at the most venerable Lutheran theological faculty, while I couldn't find it anymore in any humanistic or even Roman Catholic milieu. In my seminar after these lectures, I picked up some excellent three, four, five excellent young men who really wanted to do research on the 12th century, studying history as I taught them to study history. I tried to get people to understand how immensely distant the mental world is in which the 12th century authors moved. I do this in order to pull the students out, away from their typewriter, their felt-tip pen, the telephone which we have to grab in order to give them the sense of a trip between two space-times, ours, 
and at other time. I then try to keep them for a while, becoming aware how much we are strangers, how little they can use their own concepts, their own modern German or English or French words to translate these Latin texts and prepare them then to re-enter the modern world with a crucial question about it. And at the moment of re-entry, to become aware for a moment what different universe they enter when they enter their own certainties, the world in which, in which they feel at home. So I, I, I worked on teaching history, some people said, using it as if it were a drug. I said, no. Cultivating disciplined states of altered awareness, cultivating daydream states, rooted thoroughly in what has been in the past, recovered by good historical method. The trip into history has two great purposes for Illich. The first is to illuminate the present by showing us how novel, surprising, and unprecedented are many of the things which we take for granted. The second is to trace our certainties back to their origins and observe them in the moment of their first coming to be. The early 12th century proved a fruitful source. I had always been fascinated during the period of my studies, my philosophical studies, my theological studies, my historical studies, by this particular generation of writers who wrote between 1120 and 1140. It was uh, serendipity which led me there. When already a man consciously beyond the middle of his life, I returned once more to a question of method. How should I reach that Archimedean point outside of the present, which I want to look at? I said, if I go into history, where should I go? And I was so much at home in the 12th century. So I'm not claiming any special status for the 12th century, but simply a special preference during my life for a lot of authors. Now, the 12th century is a hinge period. It's the historian who constructs the hinge, that's true. But it is, can be made very credible as a hinge period. And many of precisely those certainties of today, which I wanted to explore in order to see how they came into existence. Those assumptions which by going unexamined have turned into these certainties, I can observe so clearly in their emergence in the 12th century. What is one such certainty that you can see emerging? Well, you see, for instance, the certainty about the body. In 1100, the crucified Christ, who is one of the most important 
representations which I left of us, of what people thought about the flesh, is still very much the Christ of the first millennium, the first 300 years of Christianity knew absolutely no crucifix. From then on until the 11th century, essentially, he who is on the cross is dressed up as a priest, is a person alive, crowned by the sun, even if his heart is pierced and the blood flows out, you can see that he is a fully alive person. It's an icon an ideogram, it is not a body which is represented. In the 12th century, in, in the 9th century already, I should go back, in the 9th century, slowly the clothes of the priest, the king, the columbium as we call it, is, disappears from the body. And he is represented in his nakedness, but still as a live body, with eyes which look at you, even if his heart is opened. By the end of the 12th century, his head is inclined. He's a dead man. His body is shown tortured. Physical pain is represented as acutely as you can possibly represent it. No wonder, 20 years later, Francis will go and begin to kiss the wounds of lepers. No wonder Francis of Assisi will feel a new feeling for which there was no real word nor importance. Even in Christianity, compassion so strong that the suffering with the suffering Christ will express itself written on his hands and feet as stigmata and an epidemic of stigmata will appear all over Central Europe. Let me take another body-related change. You know what relics are, mm -hmm. bones of saints. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this, this sounds disgusting and, and, and somewhat ridiculous uh, to to, to people today, to have the impression to Catholics as much as to any other body. What do you do with <laughs> running around with old bones? Well, this is how Christianity started, celebrating the glorious victory of people who had voluntarily accepted ultimate punishment. Call it crazy, that's what it was. Now, by the 11th century, by the 10th century, there is a major trade in relics in Europe. A man who has studied this very well claims that about one-third of all value transported across the Alps were relics. Of course, a value which is also well insured, one would say today, because if somebody steals the relics from you, first of all, nobody would do it, but if somebody steals the relics from you, you would go to the next cemetery and dig up a few more bones and say that these are really the bones which you bring back from, from a Roman catacomb. But what was important is that it was the people themselves, I'm not joking, I have just too many evidences for it, who smelled the sanctity of a relic. 
the order of sanctity was so much perceived by everybody that at the beginning of that century, there was one bishop in Milan who claimed that he, doesn't, he didn't feel it, and people asked themselves, why did God so punish him, or what sin did he commit that he couldn't feel the smell of relics? By the end of that century, there was already an agency which later on became the office of the Inquisition established to identify bombs as belonging to a certain saint, drilling holes through them, plumbing them in the name of the Holy See. This smell of sanctity wasn't perceived anymore. At this very time also, for the first time, towards the end of that century, we have evidence that the doctor dares to dispute the priest's place at the bid of the dying. The first intrusion of the doctor, with the first attempts to watch his patient up to the moment of his death, the dead body, the corpse, becomes very important. The burial of the corpse, just think, with boiling down of important bodies. St. Thomas Aquinas was carefully boiled so that his bones could be distributed among his friends right after his death. You know, like, like, like chicken bones. There are other changes in the sense of what a body is in the 12th century as well. A simmering theological debate over whether Jesus is actually physically present in the bread and wine of Christian communion begins to heat up. A new preoccupation with sex appears. And this new sense of the body is only part of a larger set of changes taking place at this time. One of the most striking to Illich, given his long-standing interest in tools, is the appearance of systematic reflection on the subject of technology. One of the places this reflection first appears is in the work of Hugh of St. Victor, named for the monastery of which he was master in 12th century Paris. In the writings of Hugh, and one other monk of this time, Illich finds something which he believes to be unprecedented, an interest in technology as such, not just as something integral to the various arts of shoemaking or metalworking or what have you, but as a subject in itself, mechanical science, Hugh of St. Victor calls it. Hugh of St. Victor's thinking has had a strong influence on Illich's own approach to the question of technology. Hugh is a totally visual type. He's a flam who must have traveled as a very young man somewhere to Eastern Europe, gotten his early monastic training there. By the age of 16, 17, I see him traipsing back to Paris. Just when the scandal around Abelard's unmanning had taken place, establishing himself in that relatively new kind of community of uh, canons regular, no more monks, but people who live in community in town for the purpose of docere verbo et exemplo, to teach by speaking and by giving an example how one lives in a city. And five years later, already being the master of studies in that little cloister of St. Victor on what was then outside Paris, what today would be the left bench. 
He was an intensely visual type, as I say. Everything resolves into light. And when you reads, he's in the search of light. And when you loves, he is enlightened by love. In his doctrine, he has three pairs of eyes. He has of eyes of the body with which he grasps the physical things and the eyes of the mind with which he understands what's really in them and what relates them to each other and the heart, eyes of the heart which must slowly open and with which once he look into invisible, unspeakable, unlimited light of God. Now, living with that concentration in all his reflections on light, he feels that the worst thing which has happened as a consequence of disobedience in paradise is an obscuring, a shadow which has fallen between man and creation into which God has placed him. Because God has made man so that he fits into a garden. He has made creation in such a, so, in such a way that man would perfectly fit into it. The human being, Adam and Eve, are the only beings God has created which are not protected by a thick fur against the cold and by scales against the thorns and who don't have good claws, hands made only for fruit picking. But God had told them to behave to, according to certain, we would say today, ecological rules. There was one tree they were not to break because if they would break it, they would destroy, according to Hugh, the beautiful balance for harmony of the universe. And what do these two guys do? According to Hugh, Eve out of curiosity and Adam out of love for Eve, whom we want to cherish, break a branch precisely from that tree and eat that apple. Consequence, according to Hugh, was foreseeable. The balance of the universe changed. And man was left, the human being was left with the body given to him in creation for a being fitting into paradise, into one which was made to bleed by every thorn and needed shoes, into one which felt cold and needed spinning and weaving and woolens. So Hugh develops a philosophical theology of technology in which technology is an activity by which man, thanks to what God has given him in creation, remedies in part what he has lost through his ecological intervention, which was sin. Tools are a search for a remedy, a kind of a Tool-making is a kind of a penitential activity. It's kind of making the sin with which we are born and which we have inherited a little less unpleasant. 
when in the early 70s people began to talk about ecology, about we having to live in a world into which man, as modern technologists, have introduced disorder, I somehow had a faint remembrance that I'd heard a story like that. And very quickly, I had picked up in my Ming, Ming's uh, church fathers, the two passages where Hugh presents this idea. And when I began to see who else has done, has spoken that way, who else has spoken of sin as a destruction of the fit between man, kind, and nature. Who else has spoken, more importantly, of technology as a recovery, partial recovery, a remedy of that which would have been the destination of man from to live in during his whole existence on life? And of course, I fell again back to, I came back to Hugh. Hugh of St. Victor's modest account of technology as remedy never caught on, nor did his project of making mechanical science a part of philosophy. Theoretical and practical concerns were divorced in the new universities, and the trades were degraded and excluded from the academic curriculum. Medicine as an academic subject, for example, excluded surgery. Within a couple of generations of Hugh's death, Illich has written, the purpose of tools had come to be seen as the subduing of nature, and many monasteries had become enthusiastic promoters of this view. But why did Europe, and the places to which its civilization spread come to be so dominated by technology. Illich thinks he can find the beginnings of an answer to this question as well in Hugh's writings. I have a suspicion that the concept of the tool and the Christian theological concept of the sacrament are intimately related. In fact, Hugh of St. Victor, the first theoretician about mechanical science, the Scientia Mechanica, is also the first one who, out of the hundreds and thousands of carefully formalized blessings and, at that time, even priestly curses against the devil and such things, picked intellectually seven, of which he said that they did something totally different from other blessings. The idea of the seven sacraments, neither more nor less, are first clearly, this idea is first clearly spelled out in view of St. Victor. Less than 100 years later, it's a dogma of the church, Lateran, Fourth Lateran Council. 1215. I do believe that the idea of the toolless tool, which does what you want it to do, and the sacrament, which is a sign which God allows men to place, which do what God wants to do, more or less independently from the ability, the power, or even the intention the full intention, uh, the uh, decency of the priest who administers it, 
that these two concepts are characteristically Western. That it is silly to speak about the perception of the tool as tool in the same way outside of Western history since 1215. And I have been for decades now involved in analyzing what tools do to society. A Christian sacrament is a material embodiment of God's will, a means which works independently of the will of the person using it. It's a sort of technique or tool in Illich's sense. Marriage, baptism, and the rest are all things a priest can do to accomplish God's will. And it's Illich's hunch that this idea is the mold from which our uniquely Western technology emerged, so that even where Christianity is rejected or forgotten, our unreasoning faith in our tools still retains its sacramental character. Tools become, in a sense, the embodiment of God's will. The more Illich has probed the Christian and medieval origins of our contemporary certainties, the more he has become convinced that the evil which he sees in the modern world is a corruption of Christian ideals. Notions, normative notions, images, which are very powerful and unprecedented, brought through Christian, through a gospel into Western history, have been perverted to become normative notions of a cruelty, of a horrifying darkness, which no other culture has ever known. In, in the Latin adagio, corruptio optimi pessima, there's nothing worse than the corruption of the best, became kind of the theme of my reading and reflection. Most of my concern with Middle Ages is precisely to observe the process of flipping of a notion which goes beyond what I would have, I find in any other culture, in bringing out the glory of being you and I, flip into the attempt by the church of institutionalizing this and therefore becoming notions more destructive and worse than anything which I can find anywhere else. That's the reason why this summer with this young friend, Manfred Werner, I took once morning from my hands the attempt to write a history of the... I'm giving you this as one example of the invention of the marriage bond in the 12th century. Just imagine the idea in the early 12th century of conceiving of a relationship between a man and a woman, both of them so radically equally human that we can make an absolutely bilateral, symmetrical contract saying yes to each other, that this creates a bond between them and then making this into a vow. Christians are not to swear 
that's evident in the, in the New Testament, calling God as a witness who transforms this sacramentally into a contractual relationship in heaven, into a sacrament of matrimony. All societies know weddings. You have a daughter, I'm an old man, I have a son. Hey, don't you think it would be nice to become in-laws, you and I? <laughs> Let's use these two guys, we want to make our clans come. If that's what, uh, what... And by the way, you tell me, and I have noticed that we already sleep together much better, so we avoid any, <laughs> any disasters. <laughs> that's what typically weddings were in all societies. Jack Goody, you know that mm -hmm. beautiful uh, English anthropologist who had classified African uh, marriage uh, family patterns, kinship patterns, come back, comes back to Europe and says, now after 20 years I realize there is no precedent for this idea of the contract that our two children who have done something together have been at a, to see a priest. The next day they meet you and she says to him, listen, I want you to meet your father-in-law. The idea that such a thing can exist is something revolutionary, mm -hmm. but also of unspeakable potential destructiveness. So I'm concerned how unprecedented, glorious attempts to discover what you and I can do and be when institutionalized mm -hmm. can become of a destructiveness, of an evil which we barely can imagine, which we cannot imagine. Why does Illich believe the appearance of the sacrament of marriage in the early 12th century to be so pregnant with consequences for both good and evil? It seems to me that he's saying that through this sacrament, the church as an institution absorbs the power to do what before only families and communities could do, make a wedding. And second, that the man and the woman who marry represent something equally novel. They are no longer members of a family and a community. They are individuals who make a contract with each other. In this tableau of priest and conjugal couple, Illich can see not only the possibility of increased freedom, but also the dim outline of our own society, a world of atomized economic individuals surrounded by a vast architecture of institutions, of which for him the church is always the prototype. In his writings of the early 70s, Illich called on people to dismantle these institutions, to de-school and de-medicalize, and learn once again to trust in spontaneous, unregulated social relationships. And he claimed that if this did not happen, that we would eventually break all bridges to the past and become a sort of rootless non-society. Today, he thinks that this break has already happened. There has been a catastrophic break between the early 19th century and the century in which I live. The space in which I live, the mental space in which I live, is a different one than that of Goethe or of Schiller. The axioms that spin out the space in which I move are not the same axioms 
which my grandfather still took for granted. What I call the certainties by which in ordinary discourse we can talk to each other without ever mentioning them, because they lie, so to speak, beyond the horizon of our attention, today are different ones. These, if you take, take off the warp and the woof, these warps in our perception run in a different direction. I, we woof our conversation into a warp which is incomparable to a warp of any other period. Because, so to speak, there are nylon threads out of which that warp is made. An example of one of these unprecedented axioms which, as Illich says, spin out our contemporary mental space is the notion that there exists in the abstract something called life, the life that is spoken of in the right to life movement, the life that comes under medical management in our hospitals. It's a subject on which Illich was working with a younger German colleague when I met him last year. The young man whom you have met in this house, Dirk von Bettischer, and I, I under, following his outline, will give a seminar at the University of Chicago in November on this social creation of life during the last hundred years, the creation of the substantive something which people believe is there when they say a life. And what this does to perception of the human person, the doctor feeling responsible for a life from worm, from sperm to worm, to use Bob Hope's phrase, from conception of fertilization to organ harvest, rather than for a suffering person. Society reflecting on a life being a subject within the state, a life being a citizen, discussing what it means when management, in this case here medical management, does not deal with persons, but with a manageable construct before birth and after brain death. This is just one example of a number of, I don't know if I should call these concepts of constructs of an epistemologically explosive nature, I should use a simpler, language, a simpler term, of deeply corrupting images, which we, I will not allow to enter into conversation, except to exercise them. When the conversation takes place in front of me, I go out and ask people to stop. Illich's refusal of certain words and certain thoughts has led him into silence, not a passive, resigned silence, but an active witness to a truth which only silence can finally comprehend. To see what we have become, he says, we must learn to think outside of modern assumptions. I do believe that by careful thinking, by very disciplined commentary, interpretation, exegesis, heuristically appropriate approach to texts and the reading of texts, 
I can still bring students out of the world, which we take for granted, show them how our English language is not applicable to translate the Latin text of the 12th century into English, mm -hmm. into the English which we speak on the street, to see that we have to go into another language which by now is dead, an English which has at best a marginal existence among us today, which of course makes me very unpopular among many creative authors. In order to make them aware what virtuous behavior today might mean differently from any previous time in history, refusal not only to say certain things, but to use certain words and to permit certain feelings to creep into our heart. I cannot allow to meditate on the an atomic bomb device without going under. Reflection on certain things which we take for granted is, in my opinion, acceptance of self-destruction. Psychic self. Psychic is not the right word. Yeah. Burning out your heart. And while it is easy to speak about things which cannot be discussed, but only exercised, such as genetic engineering, such as the atom bomb. There are other things, other realities, which once you accept that there might be intolerable realities, come very close to these destructive devices. Most of what's going on at this moment in so-called bioethics, what is discussed there, most of the discussions, in my opinion, belong into the area of this uh, apocalyptic randiness. I have no, I don't know how else I should speak about it. The triumphant, I have an even more horrible one to tell you. Let's imagine an even more horrible situation. I think Lifton, book on the Nazi doctors is important. In this book, this book is not about horrors, but it's about the extraordinary ability of Nazi doc of these particular Nazi doctors to split between effective experimentation and administration of death-dealing poisons to the prisoners and kindness and affectionate concern with their daughters and wives. If Danny Berrigan got lift and right, he wrote that book with the intent of following it by a second book in which he analyzes the same kind of splitting which goes on among contemporary doctors highly paid and practicing in our hospitals. I welcome that this one man better, com com more competent than anybody whom I know to write this book finally does it. I wanted to do it and didn't have the ability to do it. We cannot be careful enough to refuse to act as splitters, to live a sp split life in that sense. And yet, 
we cannot avoid in very many circumstances to act as economic men of our time. When you s speak about atomic devices, you are saying not that we shouldn't consider that they're in the world, but that we should refuse. What else can you say about one atomic bomb in the world? But a shout. This is the reason why when I began, I began to teach in Germany at the time, the Pershing missiles were being, began to be stationed there to be available to like young, mostly high school students who wanted to organize protests. And I said, we can't protest in any other way but standing there silently. We have nothing to say on this issue. We want to testify to our horrified silence. In horrified silence, the Turkish immigrant washerwoman and the university professor can make exactly the same statement, standing next to each other, horrified silence. As soon as you have to explain, opposition becomes again agreed it, an elite affair and becomes superficial. I do not want to take part in the conspiracy of gab about peace, but claim the privilege to horrified silence in front of certain things if I can make my horror visible. And I do understand people who go much further and say I can't do anything else but pour gasoline on myself. This danger that we will burn out our hearts, you, you've said, is talking about this does burn out heart. Discussing about it, arguing about it, somehow makes genocide an issue of discussion. Can you imagine anybody willing to discuss the possible uses of concentration camps, or at least their readying concentration camps, extermination camps, in 1943, what would you think of a person who, is willing to who would have been willing to engage in a discussion on principle about keeping concentration camps, extermination camps, ready as a threat and then we see our major churches saying, well, we can't really condemn if a country keeps atom bombs ready. I was thinking not so much of those who approve or even partially approve, but of those who protest, but still consent to engage in a discussion about uh, missiles and bombs and what have you. I, I would called to their attention that there are things which do not fit. There are words which do not fit ordinary discourse. Jews have a tradition of not using his name because any sentence in which that name would appear wouldn't be a sentence anymore. Wittgenstein and such people say that it is silly to say to you 
after my death I want that this shirt be yours, because after my death I don't want anything. Philosophy allows me to clarify step by step what an exceptional epistemic status of a word means. I think that genocide and many other extreme vanities have similar status as words. Our conversation with Ivan Illich continues next week at the same time. Tonight's Ideas program was written and presented by David Kaling. Technical Operations, John Maranovich. Production Assistants, Brian Hickey and Gail Brownell. Ivan Illich has given his permission to offer a printed transcript of this five-part series. Send a check or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Illich, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.